Well, greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. Our guest is Don Corrigan. He's author, journalist, former editor of the Webster Kirkwood Times, and emeritus editor. He's in the St. Louis Media Hall of Fame, and he's also professor emeritus at Webster University. Don, welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. Well, hey, Arnold. Thanks. It's great to be here. We'll have a little fun this morning. We're going to have great fun because we're talking about your new book, Six Square Miles of the American Dream, and it's called Amazing Webster Groves. And I've got this book right in front of me. We're, we're showing this on Facebook right oh, here. okay. It's made up of two books within the two sections, right. and then you have 14 chapters within that, and you've divided those off into historical sketches, yarns, and anecdotes, and then towns town of character and characters, which is very intriguing. So I want to dissect this a little bit. I don't want to give things away because, folks, you can get this book at Reedy Press, and they need to do that, especially those of you in Webster Groves. Now, those of you in Kirkwood, you should get it, too. Now, I need to plug right away so I don't forget. I'll be at Schnarr's Hardware Store tomorrow with another radio station we won't mention, but I'll be there from 10 to 12 doing some signings. So Come in and get your recycling bags and buy a book. And where is that again? Schnars on on, on, on Lockwood, Lockwood, Lockwood right? there. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. What is that across from the theater? The across Ozark. from the Ozark. Yeah. So you got to do that, folks. We'll have some fun. It will be a lot of fun. I guess my first question is: This is a pretty thick book, and it's pretty involved. There's a lot of a lot of labor that went into this. How long did this take you to accumulate all of the information that you had? Whenever I get asked that, I always am glib, and I say forty years. <laughs> Because it really is 40 years of the newspaper archives. Right. So when we went into pandemic phase and lockout and we ceased publishing for about six or seven months, I was walking around the paper and go, look at all these file cabinets full of papers. I go, this is a shame if all this would get lost if we don't come back again. So that's when I started going through the file cabinets and saying, this is a great book. Webster's got so many interesting personalities over the years. And Absolutely. And it's, it's got a absolutely astounding history because it's a old suburb it's a suburb because the railroads came through not because the super highways came through right right now how did you divide things off into the categories that you had or were they semi-organized in the filing cabinet well with the personalities it's pretty easy because you got statesmen Mm -hmm. who are the politicians over the years you got activists because this town has got a lot of outspoken people right doing good things you've got the outdoor environmental people you got the webster groves nature study society that's been here for a hundred years and all the people involved with that so that had to be a chapter you've got sports figures and lots of sports figures. yeah it was hard to win all those out because there's so many great statesmen over the years that right. have done so well and then other people who are involved in theater or the arts or television so that's how I came up with those chapters, just mm-hmm. where do I... So there's plenty of personalities to fill out each one of those kind of heads. Then with the history stuff, I went back almost to Native American days mm-hmm. and talked about what this area looked like mm-hmm. in the first chapter and then some of the early stories about some encounters with Native Americans and the pre-Civil War period, and I think that's an interesting story. Oh, yeah. Then a whole chapter on North Webster, because I think black history... Especially in this area, it's just fascinating how things went during the Civil War. Right. Um, 
after slavery was abolished, World War One, World War Two. It's amazing how many blacks from North Webster enlisted and were in those conflicts. And then the frustration when they came back, right. they, they served their country and they weren't they didn't feel like they were full citizens when they came back. So it took a while for Webster Groves to acknowledge those feelings and change things. And uh, I think it's a difficult period, but it's not a period that people should be embarrassed about. Right. It's a working through. Right. And I think Webster is an ideal example of trying to work through those kinds of issues. And then with that chapter, I also could not avoid doing famous controversies because <laughs> being in the newspaper business that's what we're looking for make some scare headlines and stuff on the front page was that five filing cabinets full or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah every time there's a development in town but also webster has some unique personalities there too so i did a chapter on the really strange characters that, so it's a little bit different from what i had in the next part of the next book which really took a look at different personalities. It's interesting also that with universities, two universities in town, I'm going to count Webster U, Webster College at the time, and then Eden, which moved into Webster, and then the vast amount of churches also just gives a different perspective other than the people who lived here. Yeah, I knew I had to do a chapter on, and I think I'd name that chapter more churches than bars. Yeah, right. Because a lot of towns in St. Louis, there's many more bars than so that's an interesting topic, and it was kind of intimidating for me because that's not my specialty, churches, as many journalists as are in that situation, although we'll come back toward the end of life. <laughs> but anyway, well, that's another story. But it was interesting to, to see, and I think that's another thing that makes this town interesting. I think there's a lot of good church history, and there's a lot of church-going people who aren't there just to do their daily Sunday obligation. Right. They're involved. Right. They care about entity, each one of those churches has a, a different sort of shtick that they mm-hmm. they spend time with and try to approach. So I think Webster, that's a, that's an interesting story for Webster too. Yeah, I have to say, Clarissa Start when she wrote her book, what fifty years ago, called Just Webster Grows, she had three chapters on churches. Wow! So it's always been a church-going community. When you look at the totality of all the things that you can choose from, it's hard to say, well, I'm not going to put that in the book. Or I have to put that in the book. How do you balance all that out? Well, that, that's interesting because I've actually had some people who are more secular, and they go, "I loved your book, but I, I didn't see why you had to put that church chapter in." And I'm going, "Are you kidding me?" There's certain things, you know. I think it's a natural thing. I didn't really have to anguish too mm-hmm. much about mm-hmm. chapters. Mm-hmm. It was a natural. All those chapters were a natural fit. So it, so it wasn't a real labor to, to figure out what to put in. How do you cut things down? Because I know sometimes you're limited, and maybe the reading press might say, well, you know, you need to add more, or you need to take out. How do you determine what really needs to go in and what has yeah, to Yeah, I be- could have easily written a book twice the size, and I actually did go over almost 100 pages from what Reedy wanted, and they said, this has got to be cut. You're going to have to decide where you want to cut it, and that wasn't an easy task. So in each chapter on the personality profiles, I had to kind of lop off at least one or two 
personality profiles, which hurt me. Right. It's kind of like your children. Well, you know, if after, you didn't... after you've written them, it's like, okay, where do you cut? But but the, the, the one thing, the one saving grace is I didn't have photos for all those mm-hmm. different chapter so that made room to make some of those profiles sidebars so you'll notice that when you go through the book like it's little like, vignettes right yeah and were people who thought they should have been in the book how come you didn't put me in the book or people who were in the book like why is that person in the book i just blame it on the publisher <laughs> yeah. yeah i just say you were probably in there but i had to cut somewhere <laughs> I, I submitted that yeah yeah that's from being a journalist you know well an ad came in at the last minute and we had to cut six inches and I don't know how you ended up not being in that story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're now obviously it's a historical book also. So there's many people who have since passed that you weren't able to interview but you had information on them. But current people, did you interview people that you didn't have as much information on that would be living at this time or how did you go about that? Did you do phone interviews, in-person interviews or what was the the source of that? I guess that probably over 50% of the people that appear in the book, I'd interviewed at some point. Wow. So I've got some of the famous stars of television. So Charlotte Peters, long gone, interviewed her twice while she was living. Wow. Some folks that are my age, boomers, will probably remember Texas Bruce and his cartoon show. Right. I interviewed him a couple of times. I interviewed Cliff St. James. Corky the Clown. Corky the Clown. And I also have some urban uh, mythology folklore about those TV shows. Because on the clown show, there's this famous story about how some kid got up on when they were trying to interview him and he said, Kramit Clown. And I asked Corky about that. And he said, oh, that never happened. Everybody always tells that story. That's just a mythology. Of course, I was doing a talk at one of the senior homes here just to last week and they go oh that's true we can remember when cram and clown on came on the air somebody stood up and said i was the one that said it (laughs) i know that's a great line (laughs) and how do you know this so well same thing with texas bruce on the texas bruce show the mythology is that one of the kids flipped the bird live on tv and i remember texas bruce and my feature story on him was adamant that never happened the kids were so well behaved and then i brought that story up at the home and i go oh that i saw it it, it happened <laughs> <laughs> so we'll have to re you know in the next ish- edition we might have to edit some of those right did you have a, an opportunity to interview fang's wife i did I now did. for those of you who don't know who i'm talking about phyllis diller yeah <laughs> Remember how she used to laugh and have that cigarette? She has holder? a great hairdresser. Oh, my gosh. My <laughs> gosh. She was a piece of work. And I asked her, she lived on, I think, Joy Avenue in Webster Groves. And I asked her, how's life in St. Louis and Webster Groves? She goes, I love it here. I love it here whenever I can get here. I'm usually out of town. She would leave the kids with Fang. They have to, Fang had to take care of the kids. And I would talk to the neighbors. And I said, did Fang really take care of those kids? And a couple of the neighbors told me a famous story that she would she would get a cab driver and say, drive my kids around St. Louis all day. How much do you need? Just show them the sights in town. Oh, wow. <laughs> and her kids and the neighbor kids would pile in the taxi. And that's wow. probably what your parents probably did that for you, didn't they? That's <laughs> <laughs> why we are here the way we are. <laughs> yeah, but she was a lot of fun. And interviewing her was like having her stand-up routine going, you know. She goes, I'm such a bad homemaker. She goes, I cook my cupcakes 
one cupcake at a time. My oven's so dirty, that's all I can fit in at one at a time. You know? <laughs> she, she just went, oh, I said, Phyllis, can we knock off the routine for... She, <laughs> yeah. And she goes, oh, just write whatever you want. I'm, you seem like a nice guy. Just don't make me look bad. But, you know, we, we had a good interview. Which, which speaks to something about many times individuals who have been in the limelight that they are very open about conversation and then some are very closed or standoffish. Did you encounter that with anybody that you interviewed over the course of your career at the paper here and researching and getting information for I might maybe it's my gregarious personality, but <laughs> I can't really recall too many people clamming up and not wanting to talk. Once you break the ice and cut up a little bit, it's not hard to get them going. Now, I've had a few disasters. When I interviewed Cliff St. James, Corgi the Clown, I had one of those newfangled mini cassette players I used. And, yeah. And of course, I had to tape it wrong in the hour-long interview. Oh. I had nothing when I came back. Oh. But Corky the Clown was happy to do it again, so we did the whole interview again. Did he do a, a weather report, too? He did a weather report. The thing that people remember him far most, and I talk a lot about this in the book, is the 16 in Webster Groves film. Really? And in that, Charles Crow like attends Sunday dinner with the Cliff St. James family. It's almost like a Saturday Night Live skit when you look at it now. But that's what people remember most. Do you remember when Cliff St. James' wife was reprimanding her, her daughter on the show and stuff like that? So that's interesting stuff. It's, it, it's a fun book, and I, w- I want to get into a, a couple of things that were like huge surprises for me. And then I'm going to ask you what some of your biggest surprises in the book as you uncover things as you open the filing cabinet up at the paper okay you probably remember some of these things but wow man i didn't know that or if you've lived here long enough you can get the stories or get some of the information but i think people would be surprised at some of the just unbelievable kinds of people who have lived here and some of the things that they've done so we're going to get that after our in our next segment So we'll be right back after this. You're listening to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston on the U.S. Radio Network. St. Louis in Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. We cover a wide range of topics, such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports, and that's just to name a few. While St. Louis in Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect to what's going on nationally as well. If you missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis in Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. There you'll find the show notes and everything that was mentioned in that episode and all the other great episodes as well. And if you've got an area that you'd like us to examine deeper, well, just let us know by dropping us a note at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis in Tune. It's heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. 
Our website again is stlintune.com. Visit us today. That's stlintune.com. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. Mark's on assignment. We're talking An Amazing Webster Groves, a new book by Don Corrigan. And Don, surprises. I was surprised when I read this. Now, I know this, and people have heard this. I'm just going to quote it, and then I'll do my little spiel. Sure. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. It's purportedly written in 1932 and 33 by a prominent American theologian who just happened to be going to Eden Seminary. Eden Seminary yeah. in Webster Groves. Yeah. Wow. It's got a lot of great history and great minds that came through there. Yep. At the Webster Kirkwood Times, we have that serenity prayer on the wall, which is very good for journalists to pay attention to. <laughs> Does that you say know? something about... But uh, I never realized <laughs> I never realized that was... And it was not until I started doing a piece on Niebuhr and Eden Seminary. That I, and that's probably the thing he's most noted for, although his theology, very progressive theology, mm-hmm. is amazing. It influenced Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter said that he was the most influential person in his life and him coming up with his philosophy of how mm-hmm. to deal with life. And Martin Luther King also had right. read some of his material. I think Barack Obama mentioned him. So very influential religious person. It's also great to have right across the street Webster University because mm-hmm. not only have they had the repertory theaters, great actors and actresses, but they've had David Kluhl, who was the poet laureate from Missouri, who I wrote about several times. I love David. I don't mm. know if you had a chance to meet David no. Kluhl, but... He had a tremendous sense of humor, and all a lot of his poetry was conspiracy theorist stuff. And but I made the mistake in the story of saying, uh, "What's the skinny on that, David?" Only I made a typo mistake and said, "What's the skivvy on that?" <laughs> and he never let me forget it. Every time I'd run into him, one letter, he'd say, "What's the skivvy? What's the skivvy <laughs> down at the paper?" He was a great guy. Yeah, no, that's an interesting part of the book too. Is how many men and women of letters have yes. come through the town. Yes. Book award winners, Pulitzer Prize winners. It's a really a credit to the public schools here. Yes. I, people knock public schools so much. If you want to defend public schools, hold up Webster Groves High School and the people that came through there. Go look at their wall of fame. Amazing people. And a lot of the people that are on the wall of fame are here. They cross over into the book also. Yes. Yeah. Because of their, I guess what I would what I would call not necessarily outreach, but how they have influenced not only the St. Louis area, but some nationally, some internationally. Now, years ago, I interviewed for a magazine story, uh, this guy named Schaller at the New York Zoo, and he's a great zoologist. Had no clue when I interviewed him that he's a Webster Groves guy. Cause wow. I, and I was in Washington, D.C. on a working for Jack Anderson on an academic leave from Webster, and I went up to New York and interviewed him for... Because he was really big on pandas. He came up with this idea that there are charismatic flora and fauna, charismatic animals. He goes, and in order to get the public interested in environmental issues and species loss and habitat loss, he goes, I'm interested in small animals, but if you want to get the public on board, you've got to do the charismatic animals. 
And I didn't find out that I'd interviewed a Webster Groves High School alum till like when I started doing this book. I'm going, wow. oh my God, George Shower's from Webster Groves High School. Wow. Yeah. There's a, there's another zoologist I have in there, and his name escapes me right at this second, but he also was really big on creating the new kind of zoo that's not just a cage with bars, mm-hmm. but bring their habitat to the zoo, try to show and show what their habitat looks like and right. inform people about that. And almost also makes the animals happier. Seems like a simple concept, but it was revolutionary. It, and yeah. and it came from Webster Groves High School kid. Interesting. Well, another one is, and he this guy was a star of 16 and Webster Groves. And uh, he's a fellow who was kind of a nerd. And his name was Demetrius. Charles Corralt was interviewing him at 16 Webster Groves. He goes, Demetrius, you're pretty smart. Do you have trouble getting along with the kids here? And he goes, well, he goes, there's not many who want to talk like I what I want to talk about. He goes, I'm interested in philosophers. I used to like Socrates and Aristotle. He goes, but now I'm more in the Bertrand Russell. And the Corralt goes, Demetrius, do you ever feel out of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just a little bit maybe. <laughs> and he goes, well, I could be, but... I guess I really wouldn't know if I was out of it or I wasn't out of it. <laughs> yeah, I love that line. That was a great line. <laughs> and this guy's a super brain. And it makes you realize the nerds will inherit the earth because this guy's now like one of the top scientists and he's in charge of the atomic, atomic clock, clock right. trying to bring things down to the nano, nano, nano second. Yeah, that's like, just I know. flies over my that, head. Oh, it's, but 16 Webster Groves was such a classic. There's so many characters that came out of that book. And there are people who still knock that documentary. I think you got to give CBS credit. It was like the second documentary they ever made, so cut them some slack. But I think it's so funny because Webster Gross people felt like it stereotyped them as greedy, materialistic, don't care about anything outside their six square miles, don't care about yeah. civil rights, don't care about Vietnam. And, and so I get a kick out of Dan Rather. He was pretty close to our office 25 years ago covering a presidential election and interviewing people on the street on West Lockwood. And this woman came up to him, started reading the riot act and poking in his face. And she goes, you did that biased documentary (laughs) about us. You made us look bad and it wasn't true. And I've never forgotten. And he backs up and he goes, lady, lady, the statute of limitations has run out on that show. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Speaking of politics, William Webster, CIA, FBI, and all of the influential, I would call, say, attorneys or other congressmen, congresspeople, and you've done some research as to how that's influenced presidential elections also. I have, but i got to tell a William Webster story. Okay. Because William Webster came in for his class reunion years ago, and I said, oh, this would be a great story if I could get... And I called up his security and PR people, talked to me, and said, yeah, well, right, you guys can have lunch in Kirkwood, you know. (laughs) Because he, he knows Kirkwood a little bit. There's a restaurant he wants to go to. So we sat outside and had lunch with the FBI CIA director. He almost didn't make it because that was the first Iraq war. Oh, wow. But it went so quickly that he was able to come. But he, but, but he had all these security people because they were concerned about right. whether, as a CIA director, would there be somebody who takes retribution for Middle East policy or something. And he's an amazing guy, and I never... He's still alive. He is. He wrote an op-ed against Donald Trump. I can't understand why. <laughs> but he, And so I actually 
got his email and cocktail, and he remembered that we had lunch. Oh wow! And we had a little conversation. I go, this That's guy, cool. this guy's amazing. Yeah, and I mentioned Tom Curtis, who's kind of relevant to these times. Congressman, he was. He was like Senator Snort, if you remember those cartoons about Senator Snort in the papers. But he was really a very principled, constitutionalist kind of guy. Mm-hmm. He was really upset with Richard Nixon, and he's and he got a lot of flack from his fellow Republicans because they wanted to hang together. And so he was upset because he felt like Nixon not only violated the Constitution because of what he what happened with Watergate, but also because he wasn't friendly to the press and, and he. You know, the, Tom Curtis felt like he violated the uh, freedom of information laws. Mm-hmm. And he said, the press, you've got to be open with the press. Open government is the best government. And so I really admired him because he was a principled guy. And he chose not to run after so many terms, too. Yeah, we need more guys like Tom Curtis back in Congress. Absolutely. And, and so, yeah. Those guys are got a kick out of the Governor Donald story, too, because... Uh, He's a Republican that only won the governorship of Missouri by a few votes, and the Democrats didn't want to seat him. Sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) History just repeats itself. I was doing some reading on another interview that we're going to be doing, and it goes back to pre-Civil War. We're talking about early Missouri history, and it was just like reading things from today. Yeah. So nothing has changed over the course of time, it seems like. I think that's true. And it gives you hope in some ways because you feel like, oh, my God, these times are apocalyptic. Democracy's no. going down the tubes. Democracy's always been fragile. Right. Demo- it's always been a fight. And it probably always will be. But that's kind of what holds it together. Yeah. That's kind of what a democracy is supposed to be about. People give their opinions, and sometimes their opinions you don't like. Sometimes things get off kilter for a while. But you got people have to stay vigilant. they got to care. They, some other things we could talk about when it comes to statesmen and stuff. I, I love the... This notion that Webster Groves was big in deciding who presidents would be. There was this guy named Bruce Alger from Webster Groves who went on to Dallas and became congressman there. And he was a real right-wing conspiracy guy. And he said that Lyndon Baines Johnson was a communist and that he he supported Earl Warren, the communist on the Supreme Court. And when LBJ and Lady Bird came to the Dallas Hotel, he organized a demonstration against them and it got out of hand it was like a mini insurrection they spit on ladybird they grabbed her gloves off of her they threw in the ditch and bruce alger was the guy that organized this demonstration at the hotel wow. he's from webster groves wow. lyndon johnson got a lot of sympathy after that and this was right before the 1960 election and john f kennedy says oh i think if i, I think i want to try to persuade lbj to be on this ticket and so he got on the ticket. Texas made the difference in the 1960 race right. with Nixon. And Nixon reportedly said, I could have won this election if it wasn't for that a-hole of Bruce Alger. From Webster Groves. <laughs> so, I've never heard that. So he, he made the difference. You know, wow. Getting Kennedy elected. Because you know that was only a, a few thousand votes, really. Absolutely. That, that made the difference. Then eight years later, Nixon comes back. And another Webster Groves story. So Nixon's running. It's tight between him and Hubert Humphrey. And George Schlatter, who did Rowan and Martin's Laughing, right. he, does, he invites both Humphrey and Nixon to be on the show. And what does he want them to be on the show for? <laughs> to he make wants- fun of them. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the, the, they're perfectly capable of doing that themselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Humphrey thought it was beneath his dignity to do it, but Nixon's handler said, you lost last time because you were so stiff Tight, back yeah. in 60. So this is 68. Go on the show. Show them that you're this guy from Webster Grove. Schlatter has him go. I don't know if you remember when they, they used to do all these little routines and one of them was sock it to me sock it to yeah. me sock it to me so nixon was on there going but ever like every 10 minutes he'd be on there sock it to me sock it to me sock it to me <laughs> and people wrote in and said oh we, we didn't know richard nixon would do something like that he's just he's a fun guy he's a real guy <laughs> he's just like us <laughs> and slatter said after that he goes i've been blamed for getting nixon elected in 68 <laughs> oh, ever since then <laughs> i'm sure that was the furthest i thing didn't from know his- that story either wow yeah, so Webster Groves has been a kingmaker in two different elections. Huge elections. <laughs> yes. Was Is there one surprise that stands out to you more than any others when you were researching and writing the book? Boy, there were a lot of surprises, but I think probably the number of people that were activists, and some of them, had a big impact on making change. Yvonne Logan, she was the head nationally for the Women's League for International Peace and Freedom. And I remember, because I was a right-winger when I was in grade school, I was a Barry Goldwater guy, and I read John Starmer's None Dare Call It Treason. And she's, and she's, her group is in there as being communist. So when I came to Webster Groves to be a reporter, I go, gosh, she's a member of this communist group. I better interview her. She sounds like she'd be controversial. At that time, she was an activist, and she was for getting rid of nuclear weapons. And she also was instrumental in the baby teeth survey, where they asked parents to send in their kids' baby teeth because... This was when they were doing nuclear testing in Nevada and all around the world, and turns out St. Louis was in the pathway of the radiation that came from these weapons tests, right. and they found out that these baby teeth had strontium-90 in unusual amounts from wow. the radiation. So she got Wash U involved, and they checked this stuff out, and she contacted John F. Kennedy on that, and they say it's one of the reasons why Kennedy pushed for the test ban treaty with the Soviet Union and signed the test ban treaty. So another amazing Webster story that she was instrumental. And, and the it's so interesting that she had that impact. But Webster Groves had a hotbed of these people that were really anti-nuke activists. They mm-hmm. went to the testing sites and protested. I got an academic leave because I teach at Webster University while I was at the paper. Mm-hmm. And so I went and to Washington, D.C. to work for Jack Anderson for a, year, a, a couple semesters while I was on leave. And that was at the time they were also doing the nuclear freeze movement. Right. So all these Webster Groves people came to Washington wow. to lobby senators, and they clued me in, Yvonne Logan's group, because I'd done the story and stuff. And uh, So I went to Jan- Danforth's office and then Eagleton's office when went to lobby them. Now, the thing that I'll always remember about that is Ike Eagleton's a Democrat, and he was far in the nuclear freeze, so I right. expected him to give them a great reception, and I expected Danforth to be a little standoffish. It was just the opposite. Interesting. They come in the Danforth's office, he's got cookies and coffee and stuff, and he's really nice to them and talks about how dangerous nuclear weapons are, and he's he understands this. But then he turns out he votes against, he votes against <laughs> the nuclear freeze. Eagleton, on the other hand, was smoking a cigarette. He's nervous as hell. With him, and he's going, 
What are you guys going to do about the Soviet Union when they do this? What are you going to do when they merv rockets and they have three nuclear warheads in one rocket? He was just grilling them, and I'm going, and they were shaking when they came out. And I'm going, gosh, that's so interesting. And then Eagleton turns around and said, Voted for it. Well, yeah, voted for the nuclear free. <laughs> it, just, it just goes to show you, you just don't know what to expect with the way politics works. Politics has strange bedfellows. Oh, it certainly does. But that, that, that thing on Yvonne Logan and the baby teeth surveys, interesting because those baby teeth didn't go away. They've been in shoeboxes, and Harvard just, Harvard Med School just decided that they want those teeth to take a look at for some other research they want to do. But this goes back wow. you know, 50 years ago. Folks, you can get more of this. Amazing Webster Groves by Don Corrigan. It's 256 pages of quick reading. You can get it at Reedy Press. It's readypress.com, readypress.com. And, Don, you've got a book signing at... Uh, at Schnarr, Schnarr Hardware, Hardware, right on there on Lockwood. Yeah. And that's when? That's going to be tomorrow. Okay, that'll be June the 18th. So 10, 10 to 12. Listening. It's their Father's Day special. Oh, come hey. In, come in and buy a rake and a recycling bag and an amazing Webster Rose. That's a great, great Father's Day <laughs> gift, folks. Don, thanks for coming in. Well, thank you for having me. It's we been, appreciate it. It's been fun. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. If you enjoy this episode, please consider letting us know. The best way to do this is by rating us on Apple Podcast. You could even write a review. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.